1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And
1: I'm Holly Fry.
0: We are coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Memphis Sanitation Workers' strike. After voting the strike on February eleventh, 1968, Memphis Sanitation Workers stayed off the job starting on the 12th in a strike that lasted for nine weeks. This is the strike that brought Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Memphis, Tennessee, where he was assassinated on April 4th of that year. And for a lot of folks, that is really what they know about the strike. They know it's the reason that Dr. King was in Memphis that day. But his assassination also really overshadowed the strike itself, which had been going on for a month before he arrived on the scene. So today we're going to talk about the strike, which started out as an effort to secure better pay and conditions for sanitation workers in Memphis, but really came to be considered part of the greater civil rights movement and the movement for economic justice.
1: Memphis sits along the Mississippi River in West Tennessee, and today its population is majority Black. But in the 1960s, its population was about 40% Black, and about 60% of those Black residents were living in poverty. More than 80% of Black men living in Memphis were employed doing menial labor for very low pay. Many had moved to the city from nearby rural areas, leaving behind sharecropping cotton in the hope of a better life.
0: When Memphis city schools desegregated in 1961, things progressed without the level of violence that struck so many other parts of the South during school desegregation. By the late 60s, the city government included some elected and appointed Black officials as well. But at the same time, Memphis really still had something of a plantation mentality.
1: This mentality was particularly obvious in the city's Department of Public Works, especially when it came to sanitation. The workforce for waste collection was overwhelmingly black, with the only white employees working as supervisors or drivers. In bad weather, employees who worked outside, who were predominantly black, would be sent home without pay, while their supervisors, who were white, were allowed to stay on the job, even though there really wasn't much for them to do. Most of the garbage
0: collectors made minimum wage, which was $1.60 an hour for 40 hours of work a week. There was no overtime pay, but you were expected to work for as long as it took you to finish your collection route, no matter how long that took. So a lot of the men were working more like 60 hours a week
1: for 40 hours of pay. This was just not enough money to make ends meet. About 40% of Memphis's sanitation workers qualified for welfare assistance. Hundreds were on food stamps, and some had second jobs. But there was a perception in Memphis that sanitation workers had a benefit that made up for this. They got so-called handouts from households when they collected garbage. This was generally cast-off clothing given to the workers rather than just throwing it away.
0: Aside from the pay, sanitation workers had a dehumanizing, filthy, and physically demanding job. In most parts of town, trash wasn't brought out to the curb on collection day, and workers had to go behind every house to retrieve a 55-gallon metal garbage can or a tub and then haul it back to the truck. For the smaller tubs, you could ease some of the strain on your arms and your back by carrying it on your head or on your shoulder. But this was before the days of using plastic liners and trash cans, so the cans leaked everything from filthy water to maggots on the people who were
1: carrying them. Sanitation workers had nowhere to shower or change clothes on the job, so they had to go home at the end of the day in the same filthy clothes and take off as much as they could before they got into the house. They had no clean place to eat lunch, no paid time off, no grievance process, and no workers' comp if they were injured on the job. In fact, if you were injured on the job, you ran the risk of being fired for it.
0: In addition to not having a clean place to eat lunch, they didn't have anywhere to wash their hands before eating lunch, uh, and there are like oral histories and and other uh interviews where they talk about like we would find a a scrap of soap that had been thrown away and like try to use that to wash our hands before we ate collecting garbage is still i would say not a pleasant job no <laughs> but it it was worse in the 60s in memphis In the 60s, a former sanitation worker named T.O. Jones had started trying to organize a union. Jones had been a sanitation worker himself from 1958 to 1963, and he had led a spontaneous walkout of 32 other workers that year. All of those workers, including Jones, were fired. Most of them eventually got their jobs back, but rather than returning to work for the city, Jones turned his attention to labor activism. In August of 1964, after months of work, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or AFSCME, granted the sanitation workers a charter as Local 1733. I'm not sure if this is actually intentional, but uh, a lot of the, like the, the local lore about it is that 33 at the end of the number is in reference to those 33 workers. Workers who had walked out and been fired in, uh, in 1963.
1: The city, however, did not recognize this union or allow it to negotiate on behalf of the workers. The city also refused to deduct union dues from members' paychecks, which is known as dues checkoff. Dues checkoff can be a contentious issue in the world of labor relations, but it allows the union to collect dues efficiently without workers having to keep up with or make individual payments to the union. And in this case, it's something that the union members specifically wanted.
0: In 1966, the sanitation workers tried to go on strike for better working conditions, but the city petitioned the court for an injunction to stop the strike. The resulting court order forbade any future strikes or demonstrations by municipal employees. A lot of the workers were also really reluctant to make waves, even if they had joined the union. That mass firing in 1963 made it clear that their jobs would be
1: at risk. Then, in 1968, two events shifted things for Memphis sanitation workers. The first was that Henry Loeb was sworn in as mayor after being elected in a runoff in 1967. Loeb had served as mayor from 1960 to 1964 as well, and both times he had run on a campaign of so-called white unity. He was a conservative, anti-union segregationist, and in the runoff election, he had defeated incumbent William B. Ingram. Ingram's record on race wasn't all that progressive, but he had spoken to black church congregations, and he had a reputation for treating black defendants fairly in his work as a judge.
0: And the election that led to that runoff, Archie Walker Willis, known as A.W., had also been defeated. Willis was a Black civil rights activist, a lawyer, and a businessman who had helped desegregate Memphis public schools. So with the defeats of both Willis and Ingram and the election of Henry Loeb, the 1967 mayoral election felt like a huge step backward for the Black community in Memphis. The second event was the tragic and horrifying deaths of two sanitation workers on February 1st. Eckel Cole and Robert Walker had taken shelter in the back of their garbage truck to try to get out of a heavy rain. A short circuit caused the truck's compactor to start without warning, and they weren't able to escape.
1: These trucks were well past the end of their life expectancy, and the workers had been raising concerns about their safety for months before this tragic event happened.
0: Cole and Walker were both in their 30s. They both had families and children. And the city gave each family $500 to cover funeral expenses along with a month's pay for Cole and Walker. They got no other compensation, no other insurance payout, and no one from the city attended either man's funeral. The city also did nothing to address whether the same malfunction could happen again in all these trucks that were still on the road.
1: After the two men's deaths... Union leaders stepped up their efforts to get the city to officially recognize the union and to allow the union to negotiate a contract for the sanitation workers. Mayor Loeb steadfastly refused.
0: This refusal is what ultimately led the men to strike, which we are going to get to after a quick sponsor break. On February 11th 1968, after talks with the city failed to reach any kind of resolution, the Memphis Sanitation Workers Union voted to go on strike. Ed Gillis, who was one of the workers, became their main liaison with T.O. Jones, and Jones became the workers' representative with the city.
1: Going on strike was a risky decision. On top of the inherent risk in walking off the job and the loss of income that comes with it, Striking workers often face harassment, intimidation, threats, and even violence. Then there was also the injunction prohibiting municipal employees from going on strike. The workers also voted to strike without
0: discussing it with national ASME leadership. They knew that the national organization wasn't really likely to support this decision. In general, garbage strikes are a lot more effective in the summer because it's hot and the garbage is a lot stinkier and the public gets a lot more on board with getting things resolved quickly. The national organization also didn't have a fund that could support the strike, but knew that the city already had a strong anti-union sentiment, and it was a union of black workers in a majority white southern city with a segregationist mayor. So at the beginning of the strike, the Memphis sanitation workers were essentially on their
1: own. Regardless, on Monday, February 12th, most of the city's 1,300 sanitation workers did not go to work. According to reports, 200 or so stayed on the job, but fewer than 40 of the city's fleet of 180 garbage trucks rolled out that day. From the very beginning, Mayor Loeb maintained that this strike was illegal and that he would not negotiate with the men in any way unless they returned to work.
0: The strike progressed along with meetings and protests to try to draw attention to the workers' demands. uncollected garbage started to pile up around the city. Some residents hauled their own garbage to the dump while organizations like the JCS arranged bulk pickups. By February 14th, the few garbage trucks that were still on the road were traveling with police escorts.
1: The Memphis branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, that is the NAACP, endorsed the strike on the 16th of February. On the 18th, ASME National President Jerry Werf arrived in Memphis to help with the negotiations, having been convinced that the strike should go ahead. There wasn't much progress between
0: the city and the union, though. On the 18th, Rabbi James Wax tried to mediate one of the many meetings that would take place over the course of the strike. Talks went on until 5 a.m. with nothing resolved.
1: After a sit-in at City Hall, a city council subcommittee voted to recognize the Sanitation Workers' Union. This took place on February 22nd, and the committee recommended an increase in the workers' pay as well. They passed all these recommendations up to the mayor, who again stated that he would not negotiate with the union.
0: On the 23rd, the full city council was scheduled to vote on the subcommittee's resolution. The striking workers arranged a nonviolent march to City Hall to coincide with this vote. But in the end, the city council voted to support the mayor rather than supporting the striking workers.
1: The crowd of about 1,500 people was, of course, disappointed and angry at this decision. They started their return march from City Hall back to Mason Temple Church of God in Christ. But as they were marching, police started nudging their cruisers into the marchers until one eventually rolled over a woman's foot. People nearby responded by pushing and rocking the police car. Then police broke up the march With indiscriminate use of mace in what came to be known as the Macing of Main Street. Seven protesters were arrested and jailed. The
0: next day, in response to this, about 150 local clergy formed the Community on the Move for Equality, or CUM, to act as allies to the striking sanitation workers. They planned to use nonviolent civil disobedience to put more pressure on the city and to raise more awareness of these issues. The Reverend James T. Lawson, activist and pastor at Centenary Methodist Church in Memphis, led this new organization. Before moving to Memphis, Lawson had a long history with the Civil Rights Movement, including helping to coordinate the Freedom Rides in 1961. He's one of the civil rights leaders still alive as of when we are recording this podcast.
1: Over the course of the strike... Come printed its own newspaper called The Appeal to keep the community informed about what was happening and offer guidance about how to stay involved and to rally the greater community around the cause of the striking workers. This included daily marches and protests with the intent of filling Memphis' jails with nonviolent demonstrators. Another of the organization's strategies was a boycott of all downtown Memphis businesses, especially the ones that had connections to the mayor and his family.
0: A lot of this episode today is really focused on men because the striking workers and many of the city and civil rights leaders involved were men. But here's where we should note that women were an active part of this strike as well. Overwhelmingly, women were the ones maintaining this boycott of downtown businesses. The mayor and his family had a lot of businesses downtown, so this was affecting the mayor directly. Women were also active in the church, community, and civil rights organizations that were arranging demonstrations and aid for the striking workers. Women prepared food, they laundered and donated clothing, and they participated in the marches, sit-ins, and other demonstrations themselves as well. This strike really could not have continued without the involvement of women.
1: Even with Memphis's religious community increasingly supporting the strike, the stalemate between the union and the city continued. Local 1733 drafted and distributed an apology letter to the city. It began, To our fellow citizens, we apologize for the inconvenience created by the mayor of your city. He has refused to recognize the basic human needs of the workers who provide vital services to you and your family. Every man should receive a decent wage for his labor. Every man should have the right to have his grievances resolved in an orderly fashion without fear of reprisal. Every man who performs his work should have security on his job. Every man should have adequate insurance to meet the needs of unexpected illness or death. And the letter went on from there, and it concluded that these were not issues of race relations, that it was about economic justice and dignity for all of those who work for a living.
0: On February 29th, the mayor published a letter of his own in the Memphis Press Scimitar, in which he maintained, again, that the strike was illegal and that no negotiation would happen until everyone returned to work. Only after everyone went back to work would he meet with representatives of the Public Works Department and, in his words, quote, "...make our meaningful grievance procedure even more meaningful." The letter said that the mayor would recommend an eight-cent
1: raise, but it also made it clear that he would not approve dues checkoff. The mayor also sent letters to every striking worker, and each letter invited that man back to work that day, without union recognition and without any other concessions. The union filed a suit against the city in federal court, but the court rejected that suit on March 1st. The same day, the mayor's home was vandalized, and he blamed the striking workers.
0: By this point, the Memphis strike had started to gain more attention among national civil rights leaders. Reverend Lawson was a friend and colleague of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and he had been in touch with him about the strike. And on March 5th, the announcement came that King was coming to Memphis.
1: We're going to talk more about this part of the story after we first pause for a little sponsor break. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at HowLifeUnfolds.com slash When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
0: In March of 1968, tensions in Memphis were escalating. Ten union leaders had been jailed for contempt of court on the 6th. Demonstrators held a mock funeral at City Hall to symbolically mourn the death of freedom in Memphis. Trash fires had broken out in South Memphis on the 8th, and the National Guard had started holding drills at the mayor's suggestion a day later.
1: By mid-March, national civil rights leaders had arrived on the scene, including NAACP Executive Secretary Roy Wilkins and Bayard Rustin, who is the subject of a two-part podcast in our archive. Ralph David Abernathy and James Bevel of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference came to Memphis to work with the strike as well. On March 14th, Roy Wilkins met with a crowd of about 10,000 people and encouraged them to approach the strike as a nonviolent protest. And on the 15th, he held a news conference expressing the National Civil Rights Movement's support of this strike. At this
0: point, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was working on the Poor People's Campaign. This was a planned series of protests for economic justice, jobs, education, and housing, which were to culminate in a takeover and mass occupation of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. During this occupation, people would live on the Mall in a shantytown to emphasize the disparities in wealth between rich and poor people in the United States.
1: King had begun to conceive of the Poor People's Campaign after visiting some of the poorest parts of the South, after which he refocused his own advocacy to include economic inequality in addition to racial inequality. And even though the Poor People's Campaign was ultimately focused on Washington, King saw how compatible the Memphis strike was with it. So he
0: decided to basically make the Memphis strike part of the Poor People's Campaign. He arrived in Memphis on March 18th, more than a month into the strike, which is really when the strike started to become national news. On the 18th, he addressed a huge crowd at Mason Temple. Estimates of the total attendance vary. I saw it marked as anywhere from 15,000 to 25,000 people. Regardless, though, it is believed to be the largest indoor gathering of the civil rights movement.
1: The address King delivered that day laid out why he saw the Memphis strike as so compatible with the Poor People's Campaign. And in it, he asked what good it did to sit in an integrated lunch counter if you could not afford to eat there. He
0: went on to address the workers themselves. Quote, You are demanding that the city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. One day our society must come to see this. One day our society will come to respect the sanitation worker if it is to survive. For the person who picks up our garbage in the final analysis is as significant as the physician. For if he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant. All labor
1: has dignity. The plan was for King to return on March 22nd, but an unexpected snowstorm forced it to be rescheduled to the 28th. In the interim, the city and the union agreed to mediation and round the clock talks. But by the 27th, those talks had once again fallen apart. So
0: by the time the 28th arrived, the situation in Memphis had become incredibly tense. About 22,000 students skipped school to be part of the march, and before the march actually began, some of them were spotted throwing rocks at police. King was also delayed in arriving because of a bomb threat, and by the time he got there, everyone was really on edge. In video footage from this march, he was also obviously exhausted,
1: Early in the March, violence broke out. Someone, and it's not clear who, started breaking windows. Looting and fires followed. Organizers took King to a hotel as chaos spread through Memphis. Over the course of the day, 62 people were injured, nearly all of them black, and an unarmed 16-year-old named Larry Payne was shot and killed by police.
0: Organizers tried to control the crowd and get them to return to Claiborne Temple African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was being used as the headquarters for the strike. But once they did, police surrounded the church, threw tear gas through the windows, and clubbed people with nightsticks as they escaped.
1: About 280 people were arrested following the incidents of March 28th. The state legislature implemented a 7 p.m. curfew in Memphis. The mayor placed the city under martial law, and 4,000 National Guard troops were called to the scene.
0: Initially, the violence that had broken out at the at the march was blamed on an organization of young Black activists known as the Invaders. But one of their leaders, Charles Cabbage, met with King and had denied that he had been involved in any way. In other interviews, other members maintained that they knew about and followed King's commitment to nonviolence at the march. So it's I mean, it's just really not clear who started the rock throwing in the first place.
1: The striking workers continued their daily marches on the 29th, now proceeding past tanks and National Guardsmen armed with bayoneted rifles. Many of them carried signs that simply read, I am a man, a slogan credited to William Lucy, known as Bill, from the National Ask Me office.
0: Before he went back to Atlanta, King gave a press conference in which he was asked why he had abandoned the march. He said that he hadn't abandoned anything, that he had always said that he wouldn't lead a violent demonstration. He found himself under really heavy criticism from all sides. To the white community, he was an outside agitator who had come to Memphis, stirred up trouble, and left. Critics in the black community said that he was out of touch with the people of Memphis and what their needs were, and that if he didn't connect more with the local communities he came to, he would have the same problem everywhere he went.
1: After all of this, King debated whether to go back to Memphis. On the one hand, this situation was obviously volatile. He could not be associated with violent demonstrations, nor could the Poor People's Campaign or the greater civil rights movement. But it seemed just as damaging to have gone to Memphis, left in the wake of an outbreak of violence, and then stayed away without finishing what he started there. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference was also divided about what King should
0: do, but on March 30th, finally agreed to support his going back to Memphis. He arrived on April 3rd, at which point the curfew in Memphis had been lifted for two days. The plan was for him to give an address on the 3rd, then then lead a march on the
1: 4th. King delivered this address at Mason Temple. The crowd was enormous in spite of a terrible storm. In this speech, which is known as, I've been to the mountaintop, King said, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And we will link to the entirety of that speech in the show notes for this episode.
0: Yeah, a lot of people describe it as as prophetic in hindsight because it's clear in this speech that King thought someone was going to kill him. There were plenty of threats that had led up to this moment, but, like, it is really obvious from the text of this speech that he was speaking as a man who knew that he was going to die in service to trying to get justice for other people. I don't think that he knew he was going to die tomorrow. The next day, April 4th, King was at the Lorraine Motel getting ready for dinner. He left his second-floor room and leaned out over the railing to talk to people below, where he was shot at 6.01 p.m. King was pronounced dead a little over an hour later. James Earl Ray pleaded guilty to the crime, but he later recanted that confession, and ongoing questions linger about whether or not he acted alone.
1: Shock and outrage followed the assassination, and demonstrations and riots swept through cities throughout the United States. In Memphis, Mayor Loeb still refused to negotiate. President Lyndon Baines Johnson ultimately sent his Secretary of Labor, James Reynolds, to Memphis to settle the strike. Reynolds started holding meetings on April 6th.
0: Southern Christian Leadership Conference leaders and Coretta Scott King, King's widow, led a silent march in Memphis on April the 8th to honor Dr. King and to support the Memphis sanitation workers. Ahead of this march, Reverend James Lawson wrote out instructions to the participants. They began, quote, Dr. King came to Memphis to help all of us, and especially to help the sanitation workers win economic justice. We asked him to come because we wanted to win this strike as human beings and as men, not as animals who use violence. Dr. King died in Memphis trying to help us. Today we honor Dr. King for the great work he
1: did for all people, and particularly his great love and sacrifice for us. Lawson's instructions went on to ask, how is it best to honor him now? And they answered, to make sure that sanitation workers in Memphis won their rights without violence. Then they directed the marchers to carry themselves silently, with pride and dignity. The instructions' final line read, let us march in peace, that there shall be peace.
0: More than 40,000 people were part of the silent march. Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral took place in Atlanta the next day, April 9th. After King's
1: death, the strike continued until negotiators finally reached a deal on April 16th, 1968. Terms included two pay increases totaling 15 cents an hour, recognition of the union, and dues checkoff. The terms also promised the creation of grievance procedures and promotions based on seniority and merit. Striking workers were to report for duty with anyone not back on the job by April 24th removed from the city payroll. This so-called memorandum of understanding was essentially a contract which would expire on June 30th, 1969.
0: Although the city did recognize the union, it didn't set the sanitation department up as a union shop. In other words, employees did not have to join the union. This gave employees freedom to choose to join the union or not, but it also gave the union less leverage since it didn't necessarily represent all of the employees when trying
1: to negotiate. After the Memphis strike, other municipal and service workers in the South started to unionize. Ask Me became one of the largest unions in the country and Local 1733 became the largest union in Memphis. On April 29, 2011, the Memphis sanitation workers were inducted into the U.S. Department of Labor's Labor Hall of Fame.
0: In 2017, the city of Memphis announced that it would compensate the 1968 sanitation workers who were still living with a tax-free grant of $50,000. The city council eventually increased this to $70,000. This was basically in lieu of a pension. In their initial negotiations, the union had opted out of the city's pension program in favor of Social Security. It only became clear that Social Security alone would not be enough money to secure a person's retirement later on. And this led to years of negotiations and a complicated legal tangle that was never successfully resolved. The mayor's 2017 announcement also included plans to improve retirement benefits for current solid waste workers in the city.
1: When the city initially made this announcement, it knew of 14 surviving strikers, and that number has since grown to at least 26. On December 11th, 2017,
0: surviving sanitation workers helped break ground on the I Am a Man Plaza at the historic Claiborne Temple. This is a memorial for the strike, and it's expected to be completed before the April anniversaries of King's assassination and the strike's end.
1: The NAACP honored the strikers at their Image Awards on January 9th, 2018, with the Vanguard Award, and William Lucy received the Chairman's Award on January 15th. Fourteen surviving workers were in attendance for the ceremony, four of whom were still employed as sanitation workers for the city of Memphis.
0: There are, uh, as is obvious, a lot of folks involved with this still alive. There's also uh, a lot of video footage. There is a documentary that I watched as part of the research for this, which is called At the River I Stand. Um, The Root is doing a video series series about the strike, really focused on the workers themselves. Um, a lot of those videos, I don't think any of them are actually out yet as of when we are recording this podcast, but they are going to start coming out over the coming weeks, so that I'm sure will be very interesting to watch. Um, we should note that a lot of the conditions that were being protested during the strike still exist. There are still jobs where you can work full time and still qualify for things like SNAP, which is what food stamps are called now. So, uh, as is so often the case with things that we talk about on the show, uh, conditions that were being protested in 1968 still exist in the country today. Do you have a little bit of listener mail? I sure do! This is from Sarah, and Sarah wrote to say, Dear Holly and Tracy, you guys are the best! I never thought I would enjoy podcasts until my best friend recommended yours, and it's been an obsession ever since. I started listening to the very beginning of the series back in September 2016, and by December, only four months later, I had gone through the complete archive and was completely caught up. As I went through the series, I had a long and comprehensive list of topics I wanted to add my two cents to, but then it lost its importance, mostly, until I listened to your recent podcast on the NORAD Santa Tracker. You mentioned the Cheyenne Mountain Complex in Colorado Springs, and I had to write in. You see, I grew up as a military brat, go Air Force, and I never knew that there was another underground military site like the one in my hometown of Blue Ridge Summit, Pennsylvania. It's called Raven Rock Mountain Complex, RRMC, also known as Site R., This actually wasn't the first time I wanted to plug my little hometown in your podcast. The first time was way back when there was a Wallace Simpson episode and I knew she was born here and I was waiting for my town to be heard on the podcast when, lo and behold, all was said was that she was born in Pennsylvania. The second time was the Gettysburg Battle podcast because of the Battle of Monterey Pass happened when the Confederates were retreating from Gettysburg, not to mention my town, also has one of the oldest golf courses in the country. Funny that we only have a population of a 1,000 people, and there's so much history packed into our little area. It does help that we are located near Gettysburg, Camp David, Fort Detrick, and only a few hours from Washington, D.C., uh, and then she suggests uh, not necessarily a podcast about her hometown, but maybe about some of the other secret underground military facilities or some of the less known battles of the Civil War. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, I, in fact, was not aware that there were multiple underground, under-mountain secret military bases now I do. So thank you, Sarah, for writing in about that. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at HistoryPodcast dot com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History. Our Twitter is History. Our Pinterest name is History. Our Instagram is MissedInHistory. Missed in history all over the place. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done together. The show notes for today's episode will include a link to the text of uh, Martin Luther King's last speech. And so you can do a whole, that and a whole lot more at our website, which is com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake Kits...